I want to tell you guys a story real quick. I get to brag about my dad. So when my dad was 16, newly saved, um, how many 16-year-olds do you know who would want to go evangelize to grown-ups right away as soon as they became Christians? Well, if there would be anybody who would do that, it would be Dan Mickelson, right? And that's exactly what he wanted to do. So they decided to go to the mall, and there was a new mall in Portland called the Lloyd Center, brand new back then. And he decided to go along with his parents to the mall, but unlike every other teenager at the mall, he wanted to go evangelize grown-ups as a 16-year-old. So the parents did the shopping, and young future Pastor Dan, 16-year-old teenager Dan, decided, I'm going to go walk around and try to find somebody who I'm going to try to share the gospel with. And he noticed a middle-aged bald guy. And you know, middle-aged bald guys, they stand out in the crowd. So he noticed this guy. And <laughs> but the problem was, he was 16, and so he was pretty nervous. So what do you do? Well, what he decided would be the best thing to do would be just to kind of track with the guy, quietly stay back, and work up the nerve. So he's following him along, and minutes pass, and he kept being too nervous. So I don't know how long um, you can follow somebody before it officially becomes stalking, but he actually stalked this guy for about half an hour through the mall, through the Lloyd Center, thinking, Lord, Lord help me to talk to this guy. And finally, by the ice skating rink, he worked up the courage. I'm just going to go up to him, and I'm going to tell him. And he said, hi there, do you know that Jesus loves you, and... He's coming back soon. Pretty good start, right? And, and pretty impressive. I, I'm just really, I like to brag about my dad that he did that. Well, the man proceeded to give an answer so dumbfounding that young future Pastor Dan could only walk away speechless. He turned to my dad and said, I know, for I am he. <laughs> Isn't that good? Let me see here. I think I might be... No, I'm still bleeding. Okay. This must be something prophetic. I don't know what it is. Hopefully good. Well, you laugh, right? I mean, what do you say when somebody says that to you? Pretty shocking moment. The good news was his evangelism career could only go up from there. And it did. In fact, immediately after that strained conversation, if you want to call it a conversation, he met a group of young people who were also evangelizing, and they invited him to join them. And they went around and they were passing out tracts. And it started a series of events that led to him meeting my mom. So I'm glad that happened. And uh, my dad got to participate in an evangelism outreach with Chris Overstreet in Portland just, I think, last year or two years ago. And he got to go to that very spot in the Lloyd Center, the very place where he had first started his evangelism career. And he led two people, two young people to the Lord in that very, like, within a square foot of that spot, and he got to thank the Lord for a lifetime of evangelism. So that was, you know, the Lord redeemed it. But what strikes me is how ridiculous it sounds when someone claims to be God. Uh, who could blame this young 16-year-old for just walking away? I, I, I would probably walk away. I'd be like, okay. But when you think about it, I mean, we're used to the idea that Jesus is God because it's been around for a while. But to his own generation, think of how shocking it was, the message that Jesus brought, who he really was. Think about how it sounded to them when they heard that for the first time. So the chapter we're looking at today is called Jesus' Ministry Begins. And that sounds 
fitting and proper. A ministry begins, you know, smooth sailing and calm seas. But I think it might be more accurate to say Jesus comes in like a wrecking ball. And no offense to a certain celebrity, but if your message is in complete conformity to every other message out there in the world, you're not a wrecking ball. But Jesus really did come in like a wrecking ball. He didn't do anything the religious establishment expected of the Messiah. And it's not because he was doing less, it's because he was doing so much more. They just weren't expecting it. In fact, he demolished all their preconceived notions. He demolished a lot more than that. Early in John's Gospel, the second chapter, we see Jesus making a huge mess. Jesus making a mess? Yeah. So when people say, what would Jesus do? You can say, oh, he'd, he'd go in and make a mess. If the, if the situation is the right situation. He went into the temple. He saw what they were doing. He saw the greed. You know, he saw the cheating of, you know, good people. And he made a mess. He overturned the tables. He made a whip out of camel cords and just started, I assume he was just kind of brandishing it and not actually whipping people, but who knows, you know. And I think the reason John puts that story right at the beginning of his gospel, the second chapter, right after the very first miracle, you know, Jesus turns the water into wine. Next scene, he's in the temple making a mess. And it's because John was saying Jesus was overturning the religious establishment's expectations. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a den of thieves. I love that. It's a great scene. This is exciting. This is my most exciting sermon so far, just because I'm bleeding. Okay. So who was this guy, people started asking. Who gave him the authority to do this? Is he demon-possessed? They thought, some people thought that. Is he a blasphemer? Whatever he was, He's not acting in the way the Messiah was expected to act. See, there was an unwritten script for how the Messiah was supposed to act. It's not much of an exaggeration to say they had lines for him, they had an idea in their heads how he was supposed to look and sound, and they were sure they knew what he was supposed to do. And anyone who didn't look and sound the part, according to their expectations, couldn't fill the role. But Jesus wouldn't read from their script. He still doesn't read from any script except the Father's today, being one with the Father. And that has some implications for us. Sometimes we have unconsciously written a script for how Jesus is supposed to act and what he's supposed to do. And we can get all bent out of shape when he doesn't say his lines the way we think he's supposed to say them. It's because he has something better. Let's go deeper. I want to look with you at John chapter 3, verse 1. It's page 338 in your NKJV story books. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. I wonder if he was embarrassed, but I don't know. It doesn't say that. But he came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the, mir- the miraculous signs you're doing if God was not with him. So here's some wisdom. One of the rare Pharisees who was trying to be good and had some real insight. In reply, Jesus gets right to the point. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter... The kingdom of God, unless he is born of water and of spirit. 
Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? In verse 12, Jesus responds, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe? Then how will you believe if I speak of spiritual things, heavenly things? Verse 14, he says, Just as Moses was lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. So poor Nicodemus is in a real bind. He's in a bind. He knows Jesus must be from God. He's smart enough to see that because of the miracles. God always reveals himself to his people through miracles in the Old Testament. So they have that standard before them. But Jesus' message is so unexpected, he's finding it difficult to believe. So, real quick, what was supposed to happen according to their expectations? If you've been following along in the story, you know that the Jewish people were brought into Babylonian captivity for 70 years because of sin, but the Lord restored them to their land. And they changed their ways. They gave up the idols. They started observing the, uh, the law of Moses. And they were finally being good. And they expected the Messiah to come then and restore their own kingdom. Uh, because they were in the land again, but they were under occupation. Persia, then Greece, then Rome. They didn't actually have independence. And so that was the expectation. The Messiah is going to come and he's finally going to set things right. So you have prophecies like this from Micah 5.2. Now, try to imagine how this prophecy would have sounded to them before they understood who Jesus really was. They're expecting a political king. It says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So you can see how easy it would be to hear a prophecy like this and expect the Messiah to be a king in the mold of David who's going to rule, and he's going to extend Israel's rule to the ends of the earth. He's going to kick these Romans out, and they're going to have the kingdom back. Because they're being good, they thought. And then Jesus enters the scene. A wrecking ball. From the get-go... There is something clearly different about this man. Look at all the miracles. But he shows no interest in military conquest. He doesn't want to be an earthly king. They try to make him king at one point, and he slips through the crowd. I get the feeling they wanted him to kind of pull a Elijah and call down fire from heaven on some of those Ro Roman legions. He doesn't want to do that either. In fact, what he mostly seems interested in doing is healing the sick, driving out demons, and preaching the gospel. He even tells the Pharisees they need to repent, the most outwardly righteous of all of them, so they thought. In fact, he talks more about the need for the religious elite to repent than anybody else. That was not what they were expecting. And what's with the teaching? Take this for instance. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. You must be born again. How can a grown-up be born again? Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Even Abraham died. Are you greater than Abraham? Before Abraham was, I am. Okay, now you've gone too far. Pick up stones to stone him. The Messiah was expected to be an earthly king, not God. 
And what does any of that have to do with the Messiah's expected task? Restoring the kingdom to Israel. So that's the context of Nicodemus' confusion. How can these things be? What are you talking about? It just wasn't what he was ready to hear. So you see how they had a script for the Messiah. And Jesus wasn't playing the part. But those miracles were impossible to ignore. So either their interpretation of scripture was wrong, and that takes humility to admit, or these miracles are actually empowered by Beelzebub, and he's a deceiver, and he needs to be stopped. He needs to be killed. And you know what choice they made. The kingdom that Jesus was building was not of this world. He said that straight to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom was not limited to those living in the land of Israel, but open to the whole world. And anyone who would believe, it was and is an eternal kingdom. In short, it was infinitely bigger and better than anything they were expecting. So much so that even good men like Nicodemus and the disciples early on were confused. What is he, what is he doing? Because they had put God in a box of their own preconceived notions. Even good men and women were in danger of missing what God was doing. Thankfully, God was very patient with them, and he's very patient with us. So what would it have taken for Nicodemus to impress Jesus on that first conversation? What would he have had to have done to get it right, instead of receiving the gentle correction that Jesus gives him? I'm going to come back to that. The hardest thing for him was the claim of divinity. I can tell you right now, if someone was... Going around today claiming to be God, I would think they were crazy or demon-possessed or at the very least from Portland, like the guy in my dad's story. Now, I understand it's comparing apples and oranges because Jesus told us that if someone comes impersonating me, don't believe him. So we know that now. But at the same time, it's hard to hear someone who looks like a human being, even if they're doing miracles, here they are. You can see it's a human. But they say, I'm God? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Normally for a man to claim to be God was what? The ultimate blasphemy. Yes, exactly. The pagan kings of the day claimed to be gods. But the Jews knew better. God is a spirit. His name is so reverenced by them, it couldn't even be spoken out loud. His image was so reverenced, it couldn't be graven. And the Holy of Holies could not even be entered. And then Jesus enters the scene and says, before Abraham was, I am. I am is the name for God, Yahweh, I am. He knew exactly what he was saying when he said that, and, and they knew what he meant. That's why they picked up stones. The truth is that the natural mind cannot accept or even understand the things of God. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. It took a special revelation from God for him to understand who Jesus was. He would never have figured it out in his carnal mind. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, The one without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. And then he says later, But we have the mind of Christ. Thank God. Amen? It's a blow to our pride because we want to believe we can figure things out. Human reason is the be-all and end-all of our modern times. There was a famous French philosopher from the 18th century named René Descartes, 
And he had the famous formulation some of you may have heard, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. And if you study philosophy in college, you'll definitely hear that phrase. It's considered to be a brilliant phrase. But when I think about it, it's kind of like a little bit of a letdown. Like, okay, so you're one of the smartest philosophers in history, and the best you could do was to say that you exist. Like, congratulations, you figured out that you exist. That's awesome. If he was here today, I would say, Renee, why is your name Renee? That's a girl's name. No, I would say, Renee, that's baby stuff. Even babies know that they exist. No offense. If that's the best that human reason can accomplish, it's not very impressive. Why would you stick to training wheels when God wants us to soar with revelation? He probably wouldn't like me very much. But I'll take revelation from God any day over what I can think up with my own brain. So spiritual discernment is a fancy way of saying God gives you the answer. When you were in school, would you have liked your teacher to stand next to your desk and give you the answers on the tests? God is willing to stand next to you and give you the answers to life. But we have to be willing to listen. And sometimes they'll say things that were not what we were expecting and are outside of our box. And we can be like that first generation of believers who were not expecting it and it was hard to hear. But we have to be willing to listen to what he says. I think spiritual discernment takes about a one-to-one -one mixture of faith and humility. This is what Nicodemus would have needed a lot more of. He had some, better than most of the other, better than all of the other Pharisees, but he didn't have enough. And that's why he kind of was getting it to the point of arguing a little bit with Jesus. And Jesus said, you don't believe. This is what tripped up so many of the Pharisees. They had knew the scriptures, front ways, back ways, upside down, inside out, but they were lacking faith and humility. Faith says, I'll believe you even if I don't understand. And Nicodemus didn't understand. That's why he was like, how could this be? He didn't understand. So he wasn't willing to believe. Faith says, I'll believe you anyway. And by the way, when you believe and when you don't understand, usually you end up understanding after a while. So you believe first, then you understand. Humility says, I'll believe you because you know better than I do. This was Peter's attitude sometimes. And that's why he was able to get the revelation of who Jesus was. Sometimes he elevated his own reasoning above what Jesus was saying, and that never worked out for him. He did get better over time. My friends, we don't have to go through life with doubts and confusion. Did you know that? We don't have to go through life with doubts and confusion. God is always talking, but only those who are willing to listen will hear him. He's not offended by our questions. He's not even offended by our doubts if we bring them to him with repentance. God, forgive me, I have this doubt. Help me deal with this doubt. He will forgive you and graciously help you. He will give you the answer to any question you bring before him. In my experience, I've never had to wait more than about five minutes of listening before I get an answer, which I feel really satisfies my question. Sometimes I bring him questions that I don't think there's an answer. I can't think of an answer to this question. And I bring it to him, and I'll listen, and he'll say something. And it's like, oh yeah, I guess I should have known that. It's kind of obvious now. But he's real smart. Did you know that about God? <laughs> on the other hand, I got to say this. Someone told me once that in my sermons I tell on myself too much. But I do have to say, I've done this before where you 
you pretend like you're, a, you're asking him a question, and maybe you kind of sort of think you're asking him a question, but really it's an accusation. Why did you, why did you do that? You know, sort of like that. And when you have that attitude, in my experience, what happens is your own voice will, will just go and go and go. You're not really asking him a question. In that case, you're, you're accusing, and your own voice gets real loud and just goes, and you won't hear anything. So you have to really be asking, and you have to really be willing to believe whatever he's going to answer. And that's humility, that's faith, and then you'll get a great answer. But it does take that faith and humility. And this is real important, because only God's voice can change your life. Only God's voice can, can change your life. You might hear God's voice when he quickens a word in, in a sermon somebody's preaching. You might, hear God, you might see God's voice through scripture or in a conversation with a believer. But it's not the letters on the page that's changing you, and it's not a human voice that's changing you. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through those things. In the same way, talking to God and being willing to listen will change your life. If your relationship with God or anything else in your life is jammed up, you're, you're just stuck, there's nothing like a word from God to set you free. Now, don't ask him a question and then just give up after one second. His answers will sometimes slowly roll over you. Sometimes it feels like you've been hearing this answer for a long time and you're just now realizing that you've been hearing it. If you have trouble hearing, I'm speaking from experience, this is what helps me, just start praising, start quietly praising, just start quietly thanking him for different things. Keep the question in mind and just sit in his presence because he inhabits our praises so he's there when you're doing that and you'll suddenly realize you're getting an answer. Oh, that won't work for me. I won't hear his voice. Someone here might be thinking that. That's not humility, by the way, because he said my sheep know my voice. So if he said it, we do need to believe it. You do hear his voice. I love his voice. His voice is such an untapped resource for believers. Why are people going around lost and confused when God is always willing to talk? He even helps me with the little things. I have to confess that I'm not naturally mechanically inclined, but as a guy, you often find yourself having to work with tools. So I always say, God, okay, here's this project. I don't exactly know how to do this. And I need you to help me step by step. So if you're ever around me when I'm using a screwdriver, you're liable to hear me say things like, righty tidy, lefty loosey, because I'm like, <laughs> trying to help myself get through this. And I've been amazed by the revelations he's given me to help me get through any kind of a mechanically related project. He's, he'll give you wisdom with you know, your taxes. What are, what are your questions? Say, God, help me with this. He'll do it. It's really great. And of course, the big things. Those are the things we really need help with. He will answer. I want to tell you real quick that a few years back, we, uh, our youth group uh, went on a trip to Reading for a conference, and we used both vans, and I got roped into being the second driver. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure some of those drivers on I-5 were amazed to see two, year, two church vans whiz by them on the passing lane, but we won't get into that too much. So I was driving along, and, and that. Even I, with my driving, wasn't able to keep up with our youth pastor at the time, who will remain nameless, some of you know. But I was driving along feeling pretty self-righteous that I was driving safe. You know, I was driving 
I was keeping it only speeding by about 10 miles. And all of a sudden, I noticed our church van pulled over on the side of the freeway with a flat tire. And I thought to myself, the first thought was, I sure hope that she knows how to chase one of those tires because I don't know how to do it. And the first thing that she said as I got out of the van, I pulled over. I'm glad you're here because I don't know how to change the tire. So I'm thinking, uh-oh. The problem was I didn't even see the tire. You know, to me, the spare tire should be on the back. Or if it's a sedan, it should be in the trunk underneath the floor. If it's not there, I can't find it. And so I said, well, we better check YouTube. Let's see if YouTube can help us. She got this look on her face like, oh my gosh, he doesn't know how to change it either. What's with this guy? So we checked YouTube, and back then, um, YouTube didn't have the video. I don't know if they do now, but there wasn't a video for how to change a tire for a 2003 Ford van. So once YouTube failed, that's when I started praying. I probably should have prayed for it. Lord, I don't even see the spare tire. This whole group of teens and this female youth pastor was waiting on me to fix this problem. You have to help me. And there was some kind of a weird tent pole thing that was long, and I didn't know what that was about. What is going on here? So I just started praying and just started listening and trying things that he was, I, I was trying things that I was thinking, but I realized he was giving me the ideas. And eventually it turned out, you take this tent pole thing, whatever the actual name is, I still don't know, and there's a hole in the very far back rear of the van that I never would have even thought of, and you put it in, all, it's like you, you jam it in like five or six feet, and then there's some sort of twisting action you do, and the, the, the spare tire lowered itself underneath the van. It, it was completely hidden, but it came out. I was amazed, and I have to admit that I took credit for it. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> I'm going to manhandle this job, but it was God all the way. There was no way I ever would have figured that out if the Lord hadn't taken me through it step by step. And I can tell you, if, I can, if God can help me change those van tires, he can help you with your question. Because that was a real miracle. Okay, here's a story of how one brief conversation with Jesus changed an entire city. This is John 4, verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. Let's see, where am I? The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She thinks he's talking about literal water and she thinks... Look at her childlike face. She, she actually thinks he's going to give her water that will allow her to never have to drink again. I, I just find something charming about this woman's childlike faith. It's a little naive, but it's better than being a Pharisee. 
Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said I have no husband, but you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And going on to verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem which is coming. But Christian worship would continue all over the world. Verse 28, The woman then left her water pot went her way into the city and said to them, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So what we see here is a repetition of the same experience of Nicodemus. Jesus makes an extraordinary claim. At the same time, he backs it up with a miracle. What do you do? The water I can give you will become a spring welling up inside you to eternal life. That's quite a claim. But he did tell her everything she ever did. You can't ignore this guy. You can't just dismiss him. If you met a stranger who told you, I can give you water which will spring up inside you to become eternal life, what would you do? You might think, is this guy crazy? But the miracle. Same problem as Nicodemus. So this presents her with a dilemma. He's making a shocking claim, but the miracle is real. And like Nicodemus, the only way to really come to the truth on this is through our own inner ability to hear God's gentle voice. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And she was ready. Despite her life of sin, let's face it, five husbands, there's a lot of drama there, we don't know the story, but something went down. And now she's with someone else who's not a husband. I think that's enough material there to make about ten Hallmark movies. But, despite her life of sin, her life of drama, she was ready. Something about her was willing to be a person of humility and faith. And so unlike this Pharisee, or all the Pharisees, who were supposed to be righteous, who couldn't receive what he was saying, she was ready to believe. And she not only believed, but she went and confessed, could this be the Messiah to her whole village? And you find out later that it says, many believed. And then later it says, many more believed. As a result of her initial faith. Take note that this woman was a racial outcast of the Jews. She was a woman at a time when women were second-class citizens, and she lived a fairly wild life. But she had more spiritual discernment than Nicodemus, the best Pharisee. He's the best Pharisee in the Gospels, and he was outperformed in this case by this lady. <laughs> spiritual discernment is not about how good or bad you've been in your it's not about your importance in the eyes of the world. It's not about anything that has to do with outward appearance. What the woman at the well had, despite all her flaws and past failures, was faith and humility. Jesus doesn't care who you are, what you look like, what you've done, your level of importance to the world. None of it can block his love for you. Somebody should say amen to that. Thank you. Jesus wants to offer you a drink of his goodness. Springs of living water that will well up to eternal life. And all he asks is that we humbly put our faith in him and he'll do the rest. 
Many Christians believe that stops with the gospel. Okay, I'm saved. I put my faith in him. But it's really just the beginning. He's sitting by the well side for us. Even if you've already received Jesus, he's still waiting by the well side to have a conversation with you right now. He has good plans for us. I'm going to declare this over everyone here as, as a final statement. I pray, Lord, everyone here and everyone watching, we will come to you. We will come to you. All of us who are, labor, who are laboring and are heavy laden, and you will give us rest. Amen. Thanks, everybody.